Welcome to episode six of the Different Doctor Same Old Shit podcast. Each week we watch a story based on Doctor Order and dissect it like monsters. I'm most and oh my god, we have got a sack of shit this evening. Well, you know, we're going to get into that, Doc, and and and, and we might we might actually have a bit of a dispute about that. So we'll, we'll see how that Ooh. goes. I'm Mo from France, and to my west, it's the ever enigmatic Dr. L. How you doing, Doc? Um, I'm okay. Um, I have been out of the house for reasons of work today. Good Lord. Um, which uh, I did once last week, uh, and I've done once this week. Um, and I had to go into the big city today. Um, and I know this has probably become a cliche by now, but um, ooh, it's like the first five minutes of Day of the Dead, isn't it? Really? So, was this Brum, I presume, that you went to? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, the, the, the ancient and noble city of Birmingham. Um, and, and, and So describe it, sir. I have not been into Birmingham, I think, for two years, and certainly I've not been in kind of post-pandemic. Um, I had a train car to myself. Yeah. Um, I got the express, which meant it only stopped at two places, but I'm relatively confident that there was nobody on any station platform. Mm. Um, I had jewelry quarter railway station to myself. I had the jewelry quarter to myself. <laughs> um, spotlessly clean. Yeah. Um, no evidence of human or animal life at all. Um, very, very, very strange feeling. It, it's a utopia, isn't it, really? In a, in a strange kind of way. Um, it is, except, of course, big cities are so sustained by the human population, which sounds stupidly truistic until you actually encounter it. Big cities are so much more than their architecture and their geography. They're so sustained by the human population um, that... It just feels very, very odd when you come across one that's been completely emptied out, when there's no evidence of habitation at all. I think, I think the only time I've experienced anything similar to this um, is like the two or three times when I was a young man, when I, when I go clubbing, kind of emerge from the club at like four in the morning or whatever, wander to the train station, miss the last train, and then you're trapped in Leicester, let's say, for... <laughs> you know, you, you know, for three hours until the next train arrives, and there is not a soul to be seen on a Sunday morning. You know, yeah, and I mean, I I think it's more um, poignant is maybe not the correct word. Um, if you happen to find yourself in somewhere like Birmingham or like Leicester, which whatever the very real strengths, I don't think anyone would seriously describe with a straight face as being particularly beautiful cities. Mm-hmm. You you sort of wait for the the atmosphere of the buildings and the local geography to somehow assert itself and somehow take on an identity of its own but with without any noticeable society or human interaction and once again this this is sort of a, a border it, it isn't a borderline cliche it is a cliche but it's just completely characterless and soulless i, I was um, often asked by you know during my time in france i was often asked by my french um friends and acquaintances you know what's birmingham like and my answer always was, and I'll, I'll give you it in French first, and I'll give you the translation. It says super moche, but it's a quarter sass, it's super joli. And what that means is it's really ugly, but because of that, it's super pretty at the same time. Um, and, and that's always been my impression of Birmingham. Um, yeah, I mean, once again, you, you add that human component to it. Um, and, uh, I mean, it, it made me smile um, that... 
um, it was chosen um, as one of the locations for a recent Steven Spielberg f- f- uh, film, um, Ready Player One, maybe. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, um, because um, it was just a, a, apparently um, it was recommended as um, if you want a post-industrial dystopia that actually exists. <laughs> Come to Birmingham. Yeah. yeah um, put, put that on the tourist billboards, for God's sake. Yeah, uh, a post-industrial nightmare dystopia that actually exists. Yes, yes. Um, they've gentrified it, though, haven't they? You, you, you know, like uh, down by, um, I think it's a Canary Wharf, and that would, of course, be totally wrong, but down by, is it called the Waterfront? You know, down by uh, the Flapper, all that kind of area. It's all been very gentrified. Uh, it has the charming name of Gas Street Basin, mate. Oh, beautiful, yeah. Very, very <laughs> brummy. Lovely. Yes. Where are we going to? Where uh, are we going tonight? We're good to Gas Street, are we? <laughs> I mean, you know, once again, um, other post in, in in the country, other post-industrial gentrified areas like Canary Wharf and mm. the Albert Docks mm. um, and Media City. Um, but no, Birmingham has gastric baits. And, <laughs> oh, um, and, and that's why we love it. Let's be honest. You know, that's why which, we love um, it. Which reminds you, which which reminds you of, of the old joke about the um, the black countryman who uh, got a job as a tour guide in Yosemite National Park, and someone asks him, uh, "What's the difference between a buffalo and a bison?" He says, "Your core washer on in a buffalo." <laughs> I'll, I'll translate. You cannot wash your hands in a buffalo. There we go. <laughs> you know, there's no subtitles on podcast, dude. <laughs> 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 we have to be aware of our non-black country listeners, I think. <laughs> okay, let's move on to part one. Welcome to part one of the show, <clears throat> which we call TARDIS Talk, which is essentially just the topic of the week and uh, this week's topic here we go doc how important is the quality of acting in doctor who to you what do you think what an excellent question thank you sir um i would say not the quality but the consistency there are doctor who stories which have lousy objectively lousy acting um throughout and when it's by directorial choice uh, either through the selection of the performers or the way they've been coached, um, it can be extremely effective. Mm. The most obvious example is the underwater menace. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stick my neck out here and say the war games. Okay. Where Edward Brayshaw and James Bree, those people know what they're doing. Um, they're not bad actors and not a bad director. They've been instructed to ham it up and do bad acting. Mm-hmm. And as a, in Doctor Who, as a way of conveying alienness, um, it can be really, really effective. In The Underwater Menace, it's just fun. Mm. Um, when you get a story which strives for a tone and then one person's performance in particular really undermines it, then it's horrible. And even then, there's a lot of people I'll cut some slack to. Um, so uh, I mean I'm 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 not even going to talk about the mutants. Um, Rick James was cast in that story for a completely different and very laudable reason. Can you, can you elaborate there, Doc? Just you know, I don't I, I don't know the reference. Um, well, uh, the director wanted some uh, wanted a, an actor 
um, in the role of Cotton, um, who was very obviously from a British colony in a story about British, in, in, in a story which was a, um, an allegory of British colonialism. Sure, okay. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the black, um, the, the, they cast a black guy, basically. Um, with a very, very strong Caribbean accent. Yeah. Um, and the whole point of the Cotton character is he's trying to pass. So the performance is a guy with a naturally strong Caribbean accent and demeanour trying to pass in RP. And, 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 and the, the surname Cotton is interesting as well, isn't it? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's not even bad acting. That's directorial choice. Mm. Um, can, I mean, can, we'll... can you think of any um, like established characters, you know, that you like, but on occasion kind of chew up the, ce- chew up the scenery, you know? Um, there's people you wouldn't expect. Uh, of all people, um, Caroline John, um, mm-hmm has some moments of absolute timber. That's least that's least short for the listeners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bit um, there's a bit in uh, Doctor Who and Silurians mm-hmm. where they're in some caves and a Silurian comes out of a cave and Lishaw looks at the doctor and goes, Doctor, look, there's a Silurian. <laughs> yes. And this is only the second time that Liz has met one of these things. And the first time was extremely traumatic. Um and really, that's 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 the most emotion you'd show. Mm. Um, she, she, she seems decidedly underwhelmed in that moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, now I'm going to stick my neck out here and talk about the best bad actor in Doctor Who ever. And all right, um, I'm going to go for it. I'm actually going to go there. Hold your breath, listeners. Um, Elizabeth Sladen. Oh my God! Wait, you know what, Doc? She was number one on my list. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I love the energy she brings to the part. I love the way she really inhabits her character. Um, but she really gives it the fourth form school production sometimes, does she not? Yeah. yeah, yeah I, I, she, you know, I, I think she's... Gr- I, I love the character of Sarah Jane Smith. You know, I've, I've seen Elizabeth Slater being interviewed and she seems delightful. But I don't think she, I don't think she can act for shit, to be honest. Um, but she totally suits the role. It's a bit like Keanu Reeves can't act for shit, but he's perfect in the Matrix. Is that kind of situation? Um, I depending on which director she's working with, um, some of the directors, um, for instance, David Maloney again, um, mm. has really got the hang of um, getting her performance to be because we know she's an investigative journalist. Um, as you said before, an angle I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised they didn't push more of. And they, uh, he has the idea to get behind the idea that Sarah Jane is a bad actress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's constantly trying to fit in and sort of um, playing a role and not, not, not quite in disguise, but she's trying to do journalist things like sneaking in where she's not supposed to be. But, but she's um, a bit socially awkward, I suppose. That, that, that's where you're going, isn't it? Um, well... <laughs> I think it goes without saying Sarah Jane Smith is not a particularly successful journalist at this mm. point in her career. Um, mm-hmm. She's a bit of a rookie. She's a bit start. She's she's starting out, and like she, she's probably not the kind of person who could effortlessly bluff her way into the Soviet embassy mm. Mm. Um, in search of a scoop and get away with it. Um, so you get a few directors who um, get behind the idea that Sarah Jane is a bad actress and not Elizabeth Sladen, and mm. that works really nicely. And then you get. For instance, her performance in Pyramids of Mars, um, 
where they encourage Liz to sort of play against type um, and make her excessively fish out of water and excessively girly. And they, they, they bring some really nice character moments out of that um, because they, they, give her, they give Sarah a role that she needs to perform in the context of the story and which Sarah clearly hates doing. And mm -hmm. they, they can um, use Elizabeth Sladen's limited thespian skills. And it, it, it depends on the director. Um, but then you watch the monster Peladon and she looks like a really bad actress. There's, there's no way around it. She looks like a really bad actress. Uh, there's a bit where she's um, explaining second wave feminism to um, Queen Thalira. And at one point she stamps her foot and clenches her fists and goes, there's nothing only about being a girl, your majesty. I like the character. Sometimes Elizabeth Sladen's acting is a bit ropey, but but it never kind of ruins the story for me, you know. And and, and there's a certain charm to it, you know. I, I just accept it. That's who she is. That's just the way it is. And I and, and I like it nonetheless. I'm going to chuck you another grenade now, Doc. Here we go. Go on. You ready? Katie Manning. Um, kind of same story, really. Mm. Um, we discussed this a couple of weeks ago. Um, and you said that you don't actually think Katie Manning exists. Um, <laughs> I, only, only in my um, mind, Doc, at three o'clock in the morning. Only in my mind. <laughs> um, I have a slightly different take on the whole thing, which is that um, given the time period, um, she has a better grasp of Stanislavski's method mm. um, than Marlon Brando or Al Pacino do. Um, mm. I, think, I, I think Katie Manning, the actress, completely disappears into her performance of Joe Grant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, I think all of the um, excessive effervescence and um, constant clamouring for approval um, and clitziness and um, short-sighted pluckiness, um, I think it's something that Katie Manning, recognising that she is possibly not a great performer, simply decides she's going to disappear into the role, and I think she does it brilliantly. Sure. It sounds to me like you kind of almost think she's playing herself. When you have that job, when that's your day job, um, you're doing it for a long time. Um, so you're working for 40 weeks a year um, on that job and you're spending a lot of time pretending to be Joe Grant. Um, and you can you can pretend to be an alien slug for a really long time and not confuse it with your own personality. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're... <laughs> As you know, full well. No, I don't. Oh, really? I, I, I long since forgot how to differentiate between myself and an alien slug. <laughs> so I, 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 I literally don't know what I'm talking about. Um, I'm, I'm oh, you, assuming, made me, you made me cough laughter. Um, you made me cough laughter. I'm assuming there are better actors who can keep a distance between their own personality and the alien slug they're playing. Mm. Um, but... Um, when you're someone who isn't very many steps removed from who jo who Joe Grant is supposed to be, and you're working with the script editors all the time, you're working with the producer all the time, then you're going to get some feedback from real Katie and to pretend Joe. Mm -hmm. um, my guess would be that after a little while, the brief to the writers would just be um, hang around with Katie for a bit and then j just just write Katie. Go just yeah. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, I absolutely, I adore the character of Joe Grant. Um, you know, one of my personal favourites. I think she's great. Um, I just, I just don't think, I, I, I just don't see the the acting involved. You know, any others, Doc? 
Well, I mean, there are, there are some we'll be getting to sooner or later. Uh, and I mean, there's, there are some of these puppies we don't even need to kick. Um, ne- sort of Bonnie Sylvester, McCoy, Sylvester McCoy and Bonnie Langford yeah. and Sophie Aldrin. I mean, do, do we actually need to go there? Um, no, it seems cruel. You know, it, it's fair enough to say that um, a bit like the Merovingian kings, but in reverse, no script, no performance, and no production values could elevate any of that stuff beyond what it was. Um, and um, you've got to admire those actors for studying, for studying and struggling so gamefully um, with the endless platefuls of shit that they were handed every single week. So there um, we go, guys. You know, anybody, again, anybody playing along at home with uh, DD SOS Bingo, there's the doc's first reference of Melovingian Kings. Tick it off. <laughs> Tick it off. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Doc, we re- are we ready to get going? We absolutely are, yes. Jenkins? Yeah. Shot for the wings there. Five rounds rapid. Welcome to part two of the show, which we call Five Rounds Rapid. We're just going to throw out a few bullet points, chinwag for a little while, and see where it leads us. Um, I'm going to kick off, if you don't mind, Doc. Um, Could this be the first terrestrial TV appearance of Jedwood? What do we think about that? Oh, you mean the actual twins? The twins. Yeah, um, well, Romulus and Weemus were worry, worry, good <laughs> considering all the twubble they were in, weren't oh, they? Oh, dear, dear, dear. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you, you've just um, trampled all over my point number three, but it doesn't matter. Uh, once again, um, I mean, um, normally uh, I would not permit myself the cheap shot of making fun of someone's mild speech impediment. Um <laughs> But for God's sake, casting director, like, what were you thinking, seriously? What were you thinking? That's exactly what... Let me read you verbatim what I've written for my point number three. Why would you cast two kids who can't pronounce their R's to play Romulus and Remus? I stutter a little, so would not expect to be cast in an Aaron Sorkin fast-paced walk-and-talk drama. You know, you, you put the right people in the right place, don't you? Yeah, and I mean, we're, we're barely even into the, the the era of Jonathan Wass on television. Correct. Yet, or, 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 or Roy, Roy Hodgson. Yeah. Example, um, you know, as you say, Doc, you know, anybody listening, you know, we're not malicious men. You know, we, we don't go around down the street teasing people for speech impediments. The error is on the side of the production team and the casting department. It is not I, the fault of, of, of the actors involved. No, absolutely not. Um, the poor children were hired to do a job, um, and um, yeah, casting director, it's on you. Yeah, and, and they and they twied their best, didn't they? You know, that's the last time I'm going to do that joke. By the way, the wee 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 we did. Yes, that's, that's it. No more, Doc. <laughs> um, next point on you, sir. Um. Is this the worst Doctor Who story ever? 
it ha- it, I mean, it, it has that reputation, doesn't it? Alongside, I would say other contenders in terms of reputation would be, um, let's think. Time and the Rani. Time and the Rani, certainly. Uh, Mind Warp, I would suggest. Yeah, Time Lash. Um, time Lash, exactly, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's, unfortunately, it is all Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy, isn't it? Mo, um, do you realise... Five minutes ago, we had a discussion about bad acting in Doctor Who, and not one of us thought of Time Lash. And, and you're talking about what's the name of the, the, the guy that played Avon in Blake Seven? Paul Darrow, is it? Paul <laughs> Darrow. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely shocking. Um, is it the worst story ever? Not for me. Not for me, Doc. Um, I was actually quite surprised how much I enjoyed this. Um, I, I, I sat there. I started it playing. I thought this is going to be absolutely intolerable, but you know, just so that Dr. L doesn't get furious with me again and, 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 and submit me to 10 lashes across the back with his, with his cat and nine tails, I'd, I'd better watch it properly. And actually I really started to enjoy it. Goodness gracious me. How about that? Point number three, then what bits did you enjoy? Um, I, I, I kind of like the atmosphere of it. There, nothing, to, no, nothing actually, actually tangible. To be honest, I like, mm. the, I, I like the, I like the, the atmosphere, the ambience. Um, I liked the something we'll get onto later, like the, the, like the, the, the costumes, the set design. I quite liked the actual kind of makeup design of Nestor. I think the, the, like that kind of weird alien-looking creature. Um, yeah, n- nothing really stood out to me as as terrible as it has been portrayed. And so maybe this is a case of if you go in with expectations at absolute rock bottom, you know, it can't possibly meet it. Just as if you go in with high expectations, nothing can meet that either. You know, so so maybe it's perspective coming in. So what you're saying is you went in with the expectation that it was going to be like being sodomized by 10 baboons, whereas uh-huh. in fact it was only it was merely like being sodomized by three baboons. Mandrakes, actually, just two mandrakes. Gotcha. Yeah, two man- yeah a, a, a good sodomizing by two mandrakes was how I felt at the end of it. And that was better than I expected. So I was happy. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I went in with low expectations. I went in with no to low expectations. Um, it's been a long time since mm. I watched it, and I didn't quite know what to expect. Um, now, I've been told um, it gets a lot of its bad press become, because it comes right off the back of the case of Androzani. Sure. Um, I thought I had myself, actually. Yeah. And you know, round you, about the you, time... You roll I off... S- oh, sorry, Doc. You, you know, you kind of roll off the back of what's considered to be Peter Davison's... Magnus Opus, you know, you introduce this new doctor who's a bit weird and you deliver this story and then the season ends, it's got nowhere to go. Um, Yeah, I I can see why people kind of left a little bit dumbfounded by it. Well, I mean, round about the time that I gave up reading um, Doctor Who related material, um, when there was no Doctor Who on the air, and they still ran the annual poll, and they ran the best 50 and worst 50 side-by-side on opposite pages, and two adjacent stories 
were at the top of the best and the top. It was the case of Androzani as the best of the best and the twin dilemma as the worst of the worst. And they were adjacent to each other. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? I mean, literally the next week. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that that absolutely fascinating? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So one of the points of me rewatching this is completely detextualized um, or decontextualized from the case of Androzani. So we're not watching these through in order. We're watching these in the order that we're doing the project. So the last story that I watched um, was Castavalva. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm definitely not coming to this after Caves of Androzani. We'll get to some more stuff about this a bit later. Um, I have another point, which is um, I adore Nicola Bryant. Um, mm-hmm. I can't even express in words what an absolute trooper she is. How anyone is able to salvage any dignity whatsoever in their performance, despite what she has to carry around her neck um, and despite being lumbered with this weird, weird accent, which most definitely isn't her own accent. And I mm-hmm. don't know why she's got that. Um, I mean, the one thing you can say is that her clothing is quite sensible in the story. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, again, as usual, you know, your, your words lead to a comment that a, a bullet point that I've made for reference, which is simply Perry is fed crumbs. That's what I wrote. Perry fed crumbs. What, what's she supposed to, as an actress, what is she supposed to do? I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, well, you, you can't do anything with that part. Yeah. Um, I, and the, the only thing you can say is that uh, like putting up with that crap, um, Nicola, you're a trooper. Uh, mm. And I mean, that that's, I don't know what else I can really say about it. Mm. Um, you can't say her performance is good because she's being she she's given nothing to work with. Correct. Yeah. Talk about the accent. I, I, I think I'm pretty sure I've heard I've heard her interviewed and she and she's got quite, kind of a cut glass, uh, well spoken British accent. I think. Um, she can do that, and then um, uh, she's I, I've I've also do uh, I've also heard her done like um uh, do like a, a proper. Um, Massachusetts Bay. Oh, really? Um, she can do those as well. Is she American or British? Um, I, um, we I should think know this. Lived... We really should know this. Yeah. Um, so we'll ta- I think sort of lived... Let's take a quick pause and we'll yeah. fact check. Fact check complete. Nicola Bryant is apparently from Guildford, Surrey. Um, so, you know, no American in there at all. Um, so strange choice, I suppose. This is a constant bugbear of mine, actually, Doc. Why do casting directors constantly cast people for you know for a specific nationality that are not that national? It makes no sense to me. Answer me a question. Do, do, I know it's a bit of a, a, a backward place where people still ride horses and 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 that they um, they have trouble with um, like troublesome indigenous people, but they, they have actresses in the, in the United States of America, don't they? Well, this is the point, isn't it? Are you telling me that in nineteen eighty was it four nineteen eighty four? You know that the, the, they couldn't find a single a pretty, you know, big breasted diminutive American actress. I, I just don't believe that's true. Um, well, okay, this is a really good chance for me to uh, get my obligatory Thatcher jab in as well. Um, and it's 1984, which means the trade union system had already been largely dismantled, so they couldn't say, oh, it's the unions, we can't hire American. Mm. 
So, uh, no, um, I don't understand. But, 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 but it continues to this day, Doc. You know, there, there, there are baff- Sometimes, you know, you watch a film or a TV show and there's a baffling decision to, you know, kind of cast a, I don't, cast a South African actor as a Welshman. And, you know, there's, there's no chance they're going to get the accent right. Why? 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 I don't get it. I mean, you, in that case, you, you you can't even make the diversity claim, can you? Uh, you know, uh, you can't say the Welsh are massively over overrepresented, playing the <laughs> massively overrepresented Welsh characters <laughs> in visual media all over the world. There was a period in the nineties where Reese Ifans was fucking everywhere, but apart from that, <laughs> um, no, just. Mysterious decisions, and uh, I mean, it it gets to be a grim spectacle. But um, there's there's something inspirational about watching Nicola Bryant struggle with some of the material she gets handed over the next one year. Mm. Literally, the only thing I can, one of the very few things I can say in the favour of the story, um, is her clothes look warm and comfortable. I can't think of another of another companion who was who was so kind of poorly treated, actually. It, I, I really, really struggle. I mean, maybe, maybe uh, Mel, you know, like Bonnie, Bonnie Langford's character. You know, do, 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 remove any kind of prejudice about her performance and the story she's in, but the actual character she's playing is is it's just bereft, isn't it? Really. Um, apart from her, I can't think of of an equivalent to to, to Perry. Perry never gets the chance to get a character. Mm. By the time she leaves, um, you don't get the idea she's undergone one moment of growth. You don't get the idea that she's either enjoyed herself or not enjoyed herself. You just really want to give her a hug most of the time. Um, because and it's, it, it's a difficult thing to explain. Didn't any writer even try to give her any kind of character? Or didn't any writer ever try to do anything with her at all? And throwing forward, you know, the, the actual kind of resolution of the character is is absolutely horrendous, isn't it? As well, because obviously yeah. you've got like the the, the 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 shit that goes down in Mind Warp, but then they can't. They try to kind of salve that wound by suggesting that she is, you know, she she's condemned to a life with fucking Brian Blessed. I mean, good lord. Yeah, I mean, what what. If they'd made the character, uh, and I mean, you know, tiny, tiny things they could have done to make sense of some stuff. Instead of making her a botany student, why mm. not make her an anthropology student? Mm-hmm. Which would at least make some sort of sense about her decision to go and spend the rest of her life with a, um, a savage tribe on an alien planet. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's any number of tiny things that would have given her some kind of character, but they didn't, and so she doesn't. Um it's true. Perry, rest in peace. Um, any further thoughts here, Doc, on this particular section of the show? It's a tough one, isn't it? It's a, it, it, it's a tough one to talk. I, I suspect it's going to be a short episode. I mean, I. it's occurred to me that in the material we've gone through so far, there's nothing remotely controversial about my opinions of anything we've discussed in Doctor Who. And I went over this the other night when I was um, doing some chores. Um is there a Doctor Who story that I have a particularly controversial opinion about? And I don't think there is. Um, I'm very, very happy with nowadays that all of my opinions are mine and mine alone. Mm-hmm. 
I've had many, many years to go over them, to change them. Um, it's not like I've ever felt under any under any any element of peer pressure from fucking Doctor Who fans, for God's sake. Mm, mm. Um, you know, it's, it's not like I particularly care what any of those people think about me. Well, be careful. Um, they're, they're, they might just swap you around the head with their white plastic bags, Doctor. You watch yourself. Yeah, oh, God, head lice, no. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I, I've had plenty of time to change some of my opinions, reflect on others, harden some of my others, and... Um, None of my opinions have ended up greatly unorthodox. Mm. I think I like the underwater menace more than most people do. Um, I've changed my mind radically about the web planet in mm -hmm. the last one year. Mm. Um, and so when it comes to a story like this, um, I'm not going to try to make a redemptive reading of it because you can't. Um, but equally, I don't just want to put the boot in because everybody else has done that. So I've got to try and find a new and original way to put the boot in on it. Uh, I've got to try and mine something out of it. Um, well, while, while you think about that, I'm, I'm just going to mention a couple of my stories that, that, that I think kind of do go against the grain of popular opinion. You know, I, I love um, stuff like Creature from the Pit, Horns of Nymon, um, you know, that kind of silly era of Doctor Who. Those stories that really, really generally get a kicking, I really, really, really enjoy. Um, and, and, and but then transversely, there are stories that are universally beloved. Uh, I think I think the big one is probably Talons of Wang Triang. I just can't stand it. You know, you know what I mean. So I've I've got the odd one here, here or there that kind of goes against the flow. Um, well, I, I hate to punch you, but I I, I get I, I think nowadays Talons of Wang Triang is regarded as a pile of irredeemably racist shit. Oh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, but, but, you know, let, let, the snow, let the snowflakes melt. I don't care about that shit, um, um, to be honest. You know, um, if, if, if that's the best you can throw at something, you know, these are the people that get upset watching fucking Friends. Go fuck yourselves. So uh, I, I don't, just really to say, I don't think Talents of Wang Chiang is as universally beloved. Okay. Um, as I, 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 I got annoyed then, Doc. Not at you, mate, just at the, just at the universe. Um, I just need to hear you say that whatever your problems with it are, it's not the rat. Um, no, no, no. I love the rat. I've got no problem. No, any kind of effects stuff never bothers me. I, I, I just find it just a little bit tedious, basically. Um, sure. But, but we'll get to that in due course, of course. I mean, the obvious thing, if you want a new and original way to give the Twin Dilemma a good kicking, um, a really fucking um, unconscionably violent kicking, possibly with both your hands round its throat. You know, valorizing domestic violence is, is, is really not uh, the best way to my heart. Mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming that Gritty Soap Opera was up and running by now. Um, I'm assuming that uh, EastEnders was, was, was at least being thought of um, and um, domestic violence was about to become one of the nation's new spectator sports. Well, that's very interesting. I, I don't know the, the 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 original broadcast date of EastEnders. I'm just going to while while we're waffling, I'm just going to uh, look at that. Actually, EastEnders' first episode, um, February 1985. Man, goodness gracious me! How so, about that? Um, yeah, uh, you have it there, folks. Um, the uh, sort of 
um, loathsome self-abasement of characters and, and domestic violence didn't become a national spectator sport in the UK until nearly a year after this was broadcast. Mm, mm-hmm, mm. Um, I mean, I don't think any artefact could ever redeem itself in my eyes um, after putting a scene like that in. And there's not even any follow-up to it. There's no consequence. Um, the Doctor, who's a character we're supposed to admire, breaks one of the unbreakable rules of the universe, which is don't hit girls, ever. Now, obviously, we're talking about the strangulation scene quite near the start of the episode, uh, yes. when the Doctor attacks Perry, takes her around the neck, throws her around a little bit, um, and he's altogether unpleasant. Now, to be honest, Doc, I've got no particular objection to that scene. Um I know, it is, I know it is a source of great controversy and consternation, um, but, but but I think it is it is as dramatic a way as you can possibly demonstrate that this is a new doctor. You know, um, you know, don't expect the unexpected. You know, this is not the same guy that you that you've been lovely and cosy and comfortable with for the last three years. You know, this, this is a new breed. Fine. So if you want to do that and you want to do drama. Then in the next scene, um, Perry goes, I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah, you, you're right. Yeah, that's um, kind of, but she does kind of snipe at him and, 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 she's, and she kind of keeps on reminding him that he tried to kill her and that he tried to strangle her. So, so you know, um, so it doesn't disappear. But, but, I, do, but I, do, I do understand your point of view that her, her natural reaction would have been much stronger. Yeah, I, I mean, um, fine. Um, if you want to do drama um, in Doctor Who... After that, Perry is like, I'm out of here. And then she's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's mm-hmm. it. Oh, oh, oh see, and, and, then, and then he's alone to continue. Yes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I'll take that. Um, but, I mean, he brutalizes a woman. He then tells her um, that he's going to make her into his slave for the rest mm-hmm. of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, because the writers couldn't think of anything better to do. Um, she just sort of complains a bit. Sure, mm-hmm. Um, which almost becomes kind of a de facto role, doesn't it? Unfortunately, as, as yeah. we go along, no criticism of Nicola, you know, but 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 that's the criticism of the writing, really. I mean, um, I know it's probably a bit early in the evening for them to have included a scene where she takes a straight razor, cuts his bollocks off, and stuffs them down his throat. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the season t- we, we have to wait for season twenty-two before we start seeing that kind of nonsense. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I know that um, we shouldn't um, expect social responsibility from art. And in another internet project that we're doing at the moment, we very frequently advocate in favour of the absence of social responsibility in art. Mm-hmm. Slaytanic broadcast, guys. <laughs> Get subscribing. Um, when you're making a television programme, which... Um, so I can argue all day long that... Television doesn't have bad influences on people. However, um, I'd about to make a monstrous hypocrite of myself because I spent a good 15 minutes waffling on last episode uh, about what a great and positive effect Logopolis and Castrovalva um, mm-hmm. had on my friends and me um, mm-hmm. and how great it was that those stories made us take an interest in science and made us take an interest in engineering. And for me to turn around and say, but depicting the brutalization of women as something that has no consequences and you will get away with. Um, well, I can't say the one thing has an influence and say that, oh, the other thing doesn't have an influence at all. Little kids watch this stuff. 
that would have been shown in households where domestic violence was a material reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have liked it better if it hadn't been completely normalised and glossed over. Oh, um, as a, you know, to play devil's advocate, you know, from, from, from a dramatic point of view or narrative point of view, I, w- I would argue that domestic violence, you know, does take place where, the, where there is no consequence. Yeah, and that's the argument about the banality of evil, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, one, of the, um, one of the things that we're supposed to expect from our drama, um, if we think that the dramatic arts are meant to help us better enjoy life or else better endure it, I was about to say, I'm not suggesting the planet Jaconda should have had a convenient battered women's shelter right next to where the TARDIS lands, mm. um, but I kind of think it should. Um, I kind of think the writer should have put, um, you know, there's a way out. There's always a way out. It might be really extreme um, and it might be difficult for you, but you know, there's a way out. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it's an interesting take of, you know, you know, it goes without saying, you know, that the, the, the violence against women, women is totally unacceptable. Um, but, but I, I just don't think I have the same kind of emotional reaction to it being depicted on screen as you do. That is not to say that, that you know, that, that, that anything, anything goes and certainly not kind of like tea time viewing. I just don't think this is as extreme as others have suggested or as, as, as you have perceived it. You know, I respect your opinion, Doc, but it just didn't hit me the same way. Um, it also completely fails as drama um, because once again, a, a man the size of the doctor, he's, mm. he's, he's well over six foot tall um, mm-hmm. and he's, he's brutalizing a woman a foot shorter than him and presumably about three stone lighter. Um, and what really not even a black eye or a split lip. Yeah. I, um, I think you've been generous with three stones. I, I suspect she's about seven stone light. I'd, 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 I'd clock Colin at 16 stone and her about nine stone <laughs> at, the, at the most. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would have put the whole thing into a completely different complexion. If um, the doctor had grabbed a perfectly normal revolver and played Russian roulette with himself, mm. or if the doctor had pointed a cheesy lighter plastic ray gun at Perry, um, what, what was the reaction at the time, Doc? Have you, have you got any information about this? Because I don't. How was it received at the time of broadcast? Um, I don't know. M- my only source of reaction would have been the letters page in the Radio Times. Yeah. The Radio Times is a magazine which fields criticism of the BBC as an institution, <laughs> not necessarily of the content of BBC programmes. And there was a great deal of complaint of the you're spending our license money on this. Um, the outcry about the perceived lack of quality um, was far louder than um, the outcry about any particular part of its content. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned before, um, th- three stories earlier, um, Doctor Who had shown perfectly normal human policemen um, with Ingram Mac-10s with attached suppressors, um, shooting refugees in the back mm-hmm. um, in Millwall. Um, and that hadn't particularly attracted any um, controversy either. Yeah, you know, I wonder if, you know, the same would be true today in the, in the post-Twitter world. You know, I imagine there would be a maelstrom. Um, but, I mean, isn't that a medium where it's possible to provoke a reaction 
a, a pro-con reaction, or one might even say a neo-con reaction. There, me being witty. Um, <laughs> about absolutely anything. Of course, uh, absolutely, yes. yes. So, you know, there, there are kind of people that lurk on Twitter whose only apparent intent is in life is to is to get kind of agitated and upset about stuff. I mean, there's there's some stuff that there's some stuff that should be funny. Um, I really like the fact that there's a reference to the legendary dry, giant slugs on planet. This this is a planet that's so crap. One of its legends is about giant slugs. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. I mean, yeah, the, the, I had a very similar flat in Sheffield at one point. <laughs> um, planet Earth, call what you like. Um, has legends about winged lions and sea serpents. Um, it has all kinds of fascinating legends. We've got gorgons, we've got hydras, and this is even before you get to Africa and Asia where they have even better stuff. Um, Jacondra is a planet so crap that one of their legendary monsters is legendary giant slugs. <laughs> my, flat really? in Sheffield, my flat in Sheffield required me on a nightly basis to encircle my bed in salt. No, I was convinced that was just for the protection ritual. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, admittedly, I didn't have to form it in the shape of a pentagram. I just did that yeah. for fun. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Doc, get the points. Once again, uh, I've been struggling to um, come up with original ways of administering a good kicking to this. What's the bad, what, What's the villain's plan? Well, it seems to me the villain's... Well, I think so. I, th I think the villain wanted to um, destroy the planet um, and the explosion of the planet would somehow kind of scatter, scatter his eggs throughout, like, the, throughout the local cosmos. So it's, it's kind of like a panspermia intention, basically. Okay. I think. I, okay. I think. That's what I gleaned. Um, which I suppose isn't a terrible idea for a science fiction story. It's a good, it's a good, um... it's a good plot. It's a good over-the-top, nonsensical, you know, alien-esque plot. I've got no problem. You know, I, I, I love the 60s and 70s Bond, you know, and, and the crazier the plans, the better. So the crazier the alien's plan, the happier I am. So I've got no problem with his, with his actual, you know, his method. Well, he, not his method. I've got problems with the method, but I've got no, I've got no problems with his actual end game. Yeah. Now, it's been mentioned many times by many people. Um, even back in the days, that the early part of the John Nathan Turner tenure was marked by him being inspired by Doctor Who's past. Mm -hmm. um, so you get like The Keeper of Trackham, which is a lovely costume drama. Um, you get um, Fort to Doomsday, which is um, inspired, I think, the most by the Sensorites. Um, so it's a... Um, it's a gentle interaction. Uh, it's a gentle hedging around of two very different groups of aliens who are meeting each other for the first time. At least that's what John Nathan Turner thinks it is. Sure. Um, what it actually is, is Adric immediately turning into a petulant little boy. And guess what? The aliens turned out to have an evil plan to invade the Earth. <laughs> um, and this tendency to be inspired by um, older Doctor Who... Later, as the Jonathan Turner tenure progresses, it becomes overtaken by a desire to merely imitate it. Mm -hmm. So effectively, you've got Resurrection of the Daleks, um, which many people 
conceived to be the that John Nathan Turner wanting to do the final capstone on a trilogy that no one ever thought of as being a trilogy in the first place. Yeah. Um, yeah. And John Nathan Turner looked back and thought, well, we had Genesis of the Daleks, you know, the, the, the very beginnings. We had Destiny of the Daleks, which was something. Um, funny, but something. Mm. Um, and so now I'm going to do, I, I'm going to put the capstone, I, I'm going to put the final end um, on Davros, except just like a bad music hall comedian, he couldn't resist coming back for one more encore and then one more and then one more and then mm-hmm. one more. Yeah. And then one more and then one more. Um, and I think it occurred to me halfway through, this is the John Nathan Turner tenure and his cast and crew thinking they're doing Douglas Adams, isn't it? In this story? Yeah. I mean, um, give me a thesis here, Doc, because, you know, Douglas Adams, to me, if, if you ask me to kind of give three bullet points of Douglas Adams' uh, kind of who law, it would be kind of, you know, witty, sharp scripting, lots of fun. I, I, I see none of that here. Even though I don't hate it, I don't see any of those things. That's what it should be. Mm. You are right. That's mm-hmm. what you should take away from it. There is a bizarre tendency, particularly if you're John Nathan Turner, and particularly if you're close to people such as um, Ian Levine um, and Gary Downey at this point, that your selective memory... Um, remember, John Nathan Turner's phrase that he used frequently was the memory cheats. Mm-hmm. Um, when people used to ask him, why isn't Doctor Who as good as it used to be? His stock reply was the memory cheats. The memory oh, cheats. Yeah, so this kind of rose-tinted spectacle idea. Yeah. Yeah. What John Nathan Turner's cheating memory has taken away of the Douglas Adams era is running around in a quarry, um, a plastic alien cave set, um, a stupid monster that overacts, mm. um, and the Doctor being weird. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my opinion, what he's done is decided he's going to do a Graham Williams story, but better. But he's taken all the wrong stuff. Sure. Um, what he's left behind is um, the anarchic radical humour, the delightful interaction between the Doctor and his companion, the delightful interaction between the Doctor and the villain, um, and the idea that you can use script and the performer's charisma to elevate something beyond a tiny budget and very limited production values. Um He's he's taken the wrong stuff. It, it, it suggests to me like a, a lack of trust in his performance, basically, because I, I would suggest that, you know, during the um, Pertwee and Bakey years, in, and also Troughton, I would suspect as well, you know, the, 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 the producer and director had confidence enough in their performers that just kind of wrote the script and, and, and pointed the camera, because it's just off you go, and, and we know you're going to do good work here. Um, yeah, and I'll go further. Um, he's evincing lack of trust in people who are older and more experienced than him in making telly. Sure. None of the people involved in the making of the story are, 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 are new to telly. Um, the, the, the typist, um, I refuse to use the word writer, the typist of the script <laughs> um, hadn't done much original work and never Doctor Who before, but he had like an old pedigree on adapting John Galsworthy and, and um, Charles Dickens, I believe, for BBC adaptation. Now, he wasn't a hack, um, 
But unfortunately, he doesn't seem to want to do anything else than type some stuff in the story. You're talking about um, Anthony Stevens here, aren't you? That, that That's the typist or writer. Let's give him his proper title, Doc. Don't be so bloody yeah. rude. Typed um, by Anthony Stevens. <laughs> um, you know, the the, um, the the guy who unfolds the camera tripod oh, yes. on the story. Uh, the, do you mean uh, the director, by any chance? In a better production, I'm, you know, he, he he might have been called that, but I mean, um, camera pointer. I think find... Sorry, camera pointer. <laughs> I think you'll find, um, yeah, the, the 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 camera, the guy who vaguely points the camera in a certain direction and then goes <laughs> off for a smoke. Oh yes. Um, my point being, none of these people were complete newbies. Um, None of them didn't have a pedigree of working in television. Um, I think what you're seeing is the evidence um, of an overweening ego casting mm. its shadow over the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's now a, a producer who, let's remind ourselves, um, on a BBC production, um, a producer is an accountant. He's supposed to be in charge of the budget and make sure, uh, he's, he's a project manager. Uh, he makes sure the project comes in on time and under budget. Um but we've got a guy here who thinks he's a writer and who thinks he's a director and who thinks he's an executive producer or a, a casting director. Um, and I don't know about this. There's a multitude of research material if people want to go away and do their own research. There are claims repeated by many independent sources that John Nathan Turner was also under the influence of many external people um, at this point. And he was taking advice from some people who really shouldn't have been giving advice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, su- I suspect we can't say too much more for, for fear of litigation. Um, I actually suspect the people I would be talking about are dead. But, okay. I, I mean, I, I, I don't have evidence of this for myself. It's not. Um, there's plenty of circumstantial evidence. And I, I suspect anyone listening to this knows exactly who it is that I'm talking about. Mm. Um, you, don't ne- you don't need me to. Sure. Okay. Uh, um, should, should we finish this part there, Doctor? Uh, so at least we can pretend we've got a format. Commander. You are authorised to use the mind probe. What? No, not the mind probe. Welcome to part three of the show, which we call No. Not the mind probe. Here, ostensibly, we talk about other stories, shows and films influenced or that influenced this story. But let's be honest, we're pretty freeform, aren't we, Doc? We don't worry too much about this kind of stuff. Um, I think we mentioned before broadcast dates for this story were um, across two weeks in March 1984. Um, If I'm thinking about other things that were kind of influenced by it... I'm thinking Nestor's design is kind of vaguely reminiscent of Sylph from uh, Vengeance on Varos and Mind War. That's the closest I can get. And I would assume along the same lines, the biggest influence on it. Um, somewhere along the lines, some deluded idiot thought they were doing Jabba the Hutt, didn't they? Oh, yeah, 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 that's a definite possibility. Although then again, again, maybe we need to look at the dates because Jabba, didn't arrive until um, Jedi, did he? That's Fact right. Fact check, pause. Yes. Fact check complete. Return of the Jedi was released on the 2nd of June, 1983. Doc, you might well be onto something. Yeah, I mean, 
it wasn't until you said sill um, mm. that uh, it got me scratching my head and I thought, oh my God, they thought they were doing Jabba the Hutt twice, didn't mm. they? Mm-hmm. Um, the poor deluded fools. What else can we think of with legendary giant slugs in it? <laughs> um, I mean, I can't think of anything with giant slugs. I mean, there, there, there is, of course, uh, the brilliant book by Sean Hudson, which is fabulously entitled Slugs, <laughs> which is one of the greatest schlock horror novels of all time, only surpassed, I would say, by the sequel, Breeding Ground, which is well, even better. There was a little micro-genre of... Um, supernaturally intelligent uh, arthropod films and books around about that point. Um, what's, um, what's, the, um, uh, what's the David Cronenberg one um, in the oh, luxury yeah. high-rise block? Yes. Are you talk- you're talking about ah, another French title, Les Frisons. The Shivers. 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 Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Um, uh, there's um, there's another um, killer worm movie as well um, from a little bit earlier than that, um, which uh, I I just remember the book cover um, because the book, oddly enough, was in the newsagents right next door to the section of the newsagents where the Doctor Who novelizations were stashed. Okay, yeah, um, and next to um, I believe the Brain of Morbius. Um, was this book and it had a fantastic cover which is a lurid painting of a man with worms burrowing into his face and his oh, eyes brilliant, I don't know what that is no, I don't remember it one, one um, of my fondest um, ho- kind of horror cover memories is from um, my local video store in Stabbage which is called Video Vault um, and, they, and they had kind of the dodgy kind of soft porn and horror section at the back which, which I'd always gravitate towards, in m- much more interested in the horror than the porn. Um, and there was a fabulous cover, which was a woman in, in the shower, but you kind of only saw her from the shoulders up, you know? Um, and she was kind of, with her eyes closed, staring up at the shower, not staring, eyes closed, but head tilted up towards the shower head, unbeknownst to her, the water <laughs> being replaced by hundreds of worms. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the film was called Squirm. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, great. You see, listeners, in less than five <laughs> minutes, um, we have managed to come up with ten ways that the twin dilemma could have been better than it is yeah, already. Absolutely, yes. Instead of, um, instead of broadcasting the twin dilemma, the BBC should have done the sensible thing and just broadcast Squirm instead. Anybody <laughs> would have been happier. Um, well, it would have been far less fucking offensive, that's for sure. True. You're right. Yeah. Um, <coughs> what, I mean, what was my I, question, Doc? I've, I've lost track. All my thoughts of squirm have, have, have thrown me off track. Well, we're, we're having too much fun than we should really be having talking about the twin dilemma because uh, we decided to stop talking about the twin <laughs> dilemma and talk about other things with slugs in them. That's what's happened, really, isn't it? We've kind of got bored of the twin dilemma, which is just inevitable for any sentient being. <laughs> and, we've, and we've gone off on tangents. You're quite right. Let, let, let me drag it back briefly. The Doctor seems to cause more problems here than he solves, you know, which, which of course, is kind of antithetical to the character norm. The, the, the one that stood out to me was, you know, he's having that chat with that guy that I think he knew. And instead of kind of being polite and 
and uh, cooperative. He just he, he just kind of barks at him, silence, wretch. <laughs> and that, as as it turns out, it doesn't really cause any calamity because the guy kind of takes it in his stride and realizes who he's talking to. But in another circumstance, you know that that could have gone that could have gone badly wrong, couldn't it? Behaving that way, it's. It's another tone-deaf interpretation of things that Doctor Who does. So, once again, in the Graham Williams era, um, in um, the Armageddon Factor, the Doctor bumps into a hapless, harmless, rogue Time Lord um, who's up to a bit of no good. Um, So let's have some of that. And then, of course, one of the whole points about, if you like, the whole Patrick Troughton era um, is in the Patrick Troughton era, the the Doctor is a full-on um, 60s anarchist. Mm-hmm. Um, the Doctor would have joined the Weather Underground or the Doctor would have joined the Black Panthers if he'd had the chance. Sure. In, um, uh, I mean, and, and all he does is smash up authority. He never sticks around for the rebuilding. <coughs> um, in, like, between, starting with Power of the Daleks, where he, he wrecks the colony and then fucks off. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way through the Patrick Troughton era, the Doctor does nothing but smash up, smash up authority. That's what he's there for. Yeah. Um, and, and there's um, no sense of consequence, really, is there, about this, this trait of his character, really, until we get to Trial of a Time Lord. That's the first time they really kind of acknowledge this, I suppose, isn't it? Well, yeah. And I mean, it's that happens because it coincides with the huge failing of the end of the 1960s. Does You know, I mean the radical experiment of the 1960s failed. There was no revolution. Um, all the shit that was there in 1965 was still there at the end of 1969. Um, and yeah, you bet your life it catches up with the doctor. Mm. So do you suppose, given that we've gone into this idea that the, the Colin Baker era is a sort of tone deaf, um, not even recital, a tone-deaf attempt at a recital of Doctor Who's greatest hits. Mm-hmm. Do you suppose this is what season 23 is? We'll, we'll, we'll do it like the Troughton era. We'll, we'll have the Doctor be really anarchic and anti-authoritarian. And then in, in season 23, his whole entire past catches up with him and he gets put on trial for all of it. Except instead of 10 minutes, which was perfectly good in 1969, we're going to spend 13 weeks sure. over mm-hmm. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, evidence, I think, of so many horrible, horrible, horrible decisions. If you think of, and I'm, I'm going to say to you now what I think season 23 was all about, um, and just roll this idea over in your mind. If I said to you that I've had a brilliant idea of what we can do in season 23, we'll do all of Doctor Who we'll do the equivalent of the last 10 minutes of the war games for all of Doctor Who, but we'll do it better. And the way in which we'll do it better is by making it longer and more flatulent. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 obviously we you know, we'll, we'll kind of get to this more when, when, when we get to uh, the trial of a time Lord stuff in the, in, in the future, but it, it is a very, very interesting season, very divisive. I actually like more of it than I dislike to be totally honest, um, but, but but I do understand, you know, kind of people's misgivings. The idea that it's kind of condensing the the history of of Doctor Who into into thirteen episodes. I mean, I, I can see it, but 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 then also, you know, the, the, this kind of nonsensical 
idea that, that you take the last 15 minutes of the war games and, and stretch it into a full season. Yeah, that, that, that's just kind of getting stuff wrong, isn't it? I think it's kind of the, 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 the kind of the start of modern TV design, really, where you, you know where you, where you take what what would be like a single episode. I don't know what what show could it be like a single episode of Trek, and instead of it being like a single encapsulated kind of bottle episode, you make that kind of the the series arc. I mean, this is very much um, the spirit of excess that many people attribute to the late seventies. I mean, we're not that far on from the late 70s here. So um, the running joke is, by the late 70s, progressive rock was horrible because the way that progressive rock worked in the late 70s was to go um, right at the beginning of our thing. So you look at, let's say, White Room by Cream. Clapton solo is only 15 seconds long in that song, but we're going to do a song like that, but ours is going to be much better because the guitar solo is going to be 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's better, you know. That, 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 more that, of it. that stuff definitely exists. You know, I think about um, you know uh, a metal band, um, Iced Earth. You know, they're, they're on record really as saying that they they've got they've got an epic track which is called Dante's Inferno, and it's eighteen minutes long. And the reason it's eighteen minutes long is because Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Maiden is sixteen minutes long. <laughs> you know, so you know, I think this definitely this definitely happens, doesn't it? There's no doubt about it. Just a bit of kind of uh, competitive sport in a way. Yeah, I mean, you you get sort of little aphorisms about this, like um, nothing exceeds like excess, um, yeah. and more is more. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the this idea that we're now so far into the spirit of what the eighties will be remembered wrongly remembered for but what the 80s will be remembered for is consumerist excess yeah um and you know um if you're from the west midlands um a legendary 80s band was named pop will eat itself oh yeah this is this is doctor who eating itself Mm, mm. um it's it's doctor who gorging itself on itself throwing it all up and eating it again on that charming note, Doc, shall we move on to part four? Overweight underpowered old museum piece. Welcome to part four of the show, which we call Overweight Underpowered Museum Piece. <coughs> Here, we generally talk about production, costumes, effects, direction, all that kind of jazz. I suppose the first thing, which, you know, we, it's impossible not to mention, though it's almost redundant, really, is the Doctor's costume. Um, last week, as we were talking about... What was, what was it? It was Castroval, wasn't it, last week? Yeah, we, we talked about yeah. Castroval there. And we were talking about the ma- the, the makeup of the... Is it the Portreve? Is that the name of the character? Um, yes. And I used an expression, which I'm going to repeat. What the fuck were they thinking? I just don't know, Doc. I don't know what to think about this. I mean, to me, it's, it's indicative... It's the first like, real clear signal and visual representation of the infantilizing of Doctor Who. It, it, to me, it's so clear because he looks like he should be on fucking play school. Um, it's a really, it, it, it'll stand some examination. Um, that coat will stand some examination. <laughs> um, and insert your own bad pun here. <laughs> if you don't mind going blind. Uh if you got your Ray-Bans on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, that coat will stand some examination. Um, if you look at it up close, it's a beautifully made thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in very, very heavy, very high quality wooden fabric. Sure. Um, the tailoring is exquisite. Um, and once again, it's really, really typical of Doctor Who in this era for me that they're spending the wrong money, too much of the wrong money on the wrong things. Um, I mean, once again, we're going back earlier into the season, um, but the most obvious and the most derided example of this is Warriors of the Deep. This was a story they needed to bring in on the cheap to get the BBC execs off their backs. Mm -hmm. And they had an idea, which was a good idea. We'll use not one, but two sets of costumes that we have in storage. Um, We'll do it all indoors. We'll do it small on some claustrophobic sets. And then they go and waste the money on a water tank and really, really bad new Sea Devils costumes and a pantomime horse. Sure, yeah. I assumed, I must be honest, Doc, I assumed you were going to talk about the fact that that, that, that um, costume for the monster, what, what's it called? Remind me. The, the, the murky or the... The murka, isn't it? The murka. Yes. Yeah, 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 you're right. You're not the murky, that's something different. Um, the, mur- <laughs> <laughs> um, the murka. Um, I assumed you were going to say... That that was kind of part of the like the budget constraint, but you're but you're suggesting that they kind of splurged a load of money on that on that piece of shit. Well, however much money they spent on it, they needn't have done. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. It, added, it added nothing to the production. They could have written the murker out and saved it, however cheap it looks. I bet you it wasn't cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we come back to Colin Baker's coat, and it's a gorgeous thing. If you were to <laughs> Um, if you if you were to order that from a tailor, I don't think you'd get much. I don't think you'd get change from two grand. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Um, and I mean, there it is on front in front of you, hung all over Colin Baker. All the evidence you need of stupid money being spent by the wrong people on the wrong things in the wrong places. Stupidly. Stupidly. Um, yeah. uh, I mean. I don't even know what they were attempting to connote with that costume design, like the yellow stripy trousers and the clown coat. And but, but that's what I mean, um, Doc. It, it, it's just kind of infantilizing the whole thing. Um, you know, it, it's so juvenile and, and aimed at, aimed at children that I know. I'm not deluded, Doc. I know that Doctor Who is kind of a kids' show. Well, it's a family show, isn't it? It's not a kids' show. It's a family show. You know, it, 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 it has to appeal to, you know, the kids and the grannies at the same time. And I get that. Um, kids have to be patronised. Kids well, really hate to be patronised. Exactly. That's my point. And, and, and the more, you know, this is the first sign to me. And, and, the, and the more it went on, the more the, the, the young people lost interest in it because they were sick and tired of being kind of talked down to. And, and, and that's why we get to, you know, that's why we get to season 26. And, and there's like what, one and a half million people watching the fucking show. Yeah. I mean, is it, do you think, an attempt to create some sort of cognitive dissonance? Because, you know, in one story's time, um, we'll have um, some, we'll, we'll have a story that starts with some people planning an armed robbery. Um, we'll have the Cybermen torturing some gangsters. Mm. Um We'll have some, whether or not you like it, um, you have some not really for kids stuff. 
mm-hmm. up on screen. And then Colin Baker prattling around in a clown costume. Um, Nicola Bryant stuffed into this horrible outfit um, that communicates more loudly than anything else could. The production team of this programme um, consists of nothing but a bunch of loathsome sexist pigs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the sole purpose of that costume. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, it's it's hard to make Nicola Bryant look ugly, um, but they manage it. Mm-hmm. Um, and is it an attempt to create some sort of cognitive dissonance or, 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 or some sort of dissonant atmosphere? Um, is it an attempt to leaven the darkness? Is it an attempt to reassure the viewers? Well, they, they, look, they, 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 oh, sorry, Doug. Yeah, that, that, that idea of leavening, you know, I was thinking like the word juxtaposition, basically, you know, just so this stark yeah. contrast between be, between his kind of buffoonish appearance, but this kind of apparent darkness in his soul. Um, well, once again, we never see any evidence of the darkness in his soul. Mm-hmm. Um we we get told about it, but we never get shown it. Mm. Um, I mean, sure, in Attack of the Cybermen, you don't need another guy in a black jumpsuit. Um, but I, I mean, there are there are ways for a man to dress which displays his devil may care um, indifference to the vicissitudes of fortune without him dressing like a fucking clown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you, you're quite right. It, it, it's preposterous. I, I absolutely hate it, unreservedly. Um, go on, Doc. What, what's your first point for this section, sir? Um, so we have in the past toyed with how could you make the story better. <laughs> I should also make a point. Um, I I do like Nicola Bryant's clothes. Um, in this one, mm-hmm. um, she looks warm and comfortable. Um, not being flaunted around like a blow-up doll mm. um, is, is is really really helpful. Um, yeah. It's true, but but listener, that's the third time the doc's mentioned how much he loves Nicola Bryant, Bryant's clothes. See, I think the doc's got the hots for Nicola Bryant a little bit. What do you reckon? <laughs> Shh. Shh. Don't like tell him. Don't tell him. He's not listening. Don't tell him. Um, <laughs> Come on, doc. So. Um, how could they? How could they make the story better? And my solution is um, excoriate it from history. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, Just remove, remove it, eradicate it. All reference to it. Um, it's the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Every, right. Everyone knows um, seasons end on regeneration, right? Well, do they? The War Games did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Planet of the Spiders ended a season. Logopolis mm-hmm. ended a season. Mm-hmm. So everyone knows the regeneration is the season end. No need to look any further. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we just skip. We, we, we forget about Tenth Planet because that's too long ago. Um, that might not even have been a regeneration. Ah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, as you know, there's a private theory of mine that... Um, it wasn't a regeneration at the end of um, the war games either. Well, good God, honestly, honestly, <laughs> the doctor sometimes drives, makes me so infuriated, but please continue, sir. Um, so yeah, uh, just erase the story from history. Um, just um, what's, what's the process? There's, there's, a, there's a name for this process in 1984, isn't there? 
um, where you book, you mean? You, yeah, um, where you go, uh, oddly enough, in the year 1984, mm. um, where you, you go back through all of the state records and every photograph and you, you remove a person from history. So yeah, not only... Yeah, it's, it's, it's some, it, I can't remember, but it's, it's something like kind of deep wipe or something like that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, in any case, um, that's what needs to be done with the Twin Dilemma. Just um, erase all record of it. Um, and then you've just got a bit of a bump from the end of the case of Androzani to the first scene of Attack of the Cybermen, where the Doctor is still slightly out of sorts. He's still a bit erratic and doesn't really get right until halfway through episode one. Job is done. That's no, how quite, you improve the Twin Dilemma. I think you're quite right. Yeah, I, don't, I think you're absolutely correct. Um, we, we, uh, we could see that like, the, like, the regeneration in the end of part four counts of Androzani change and not a moment too soon. I, I think that's the line, isn't it? Yes. And then cut, cut that in at the start of Attack of the Sidemen part one and off we go. No problem. I, I totally agree with you, Doc. I totally correct. agree. Yeah, no, you, you're absolutely correct. Um, what do you think about the Doctor? Again, during like a re- like uh, kind of like a regeneration fugue, kind of referencing kind of old Doctor Who shit again, just just like in Castrovalva, um, and in Robot actually, the, the same thing happens in Robot, doesn't it? Um, what do you think about this? You, well, you, I, I, you got you got a bit annoyed about it in Castrovalva. Did do you feel the same way here? I get as annoyed, but in a different way here because here. Um, there's no doubt but that it's pandering. In Castrovalva, it's showing off. Yeah. Um, in, um, I mean, and I suppose if you did remember the, the if you did know the references, um, you might smile a bit at them. Um, I, I mean, we're, we're now fully into the era of fan wank, aren't we? Mm-hmm. None of this makes any sense. Once again, it doesn't add anything to the character. It doesn't help our understanding of the situation. Um, if you're confused about what regeneration was, it doesn't help you to understand. Um, but, unless but, but, but a bit of that kind of a bit of that kind of fan wankery, I think it has its place. I, I don't mind, you know. For example, I don't know in uh, in Trek, you know, a, a character goes, you know, one of our one of our favourite characters, one of our heroes, kind of goes a bit rogue and starts to have delusions, and and suddenly that the, you know they'll they'll see a Borg at the end of the corridor. It's not there, but, but it's just, but yeah, that's kind of, it's not fan service because fan service is a different thing, isn't it? But, you know, it is kind of fan, uh, I mean, what can you say? Kind of fan, fan pleasing, fan pleasuring, whatever you want to say. It. I don't think it is fan pandering. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in the circumstance you've just described, that's used for a dramatic purpose. Yeah. Someone who's had a traumatic experience with a Borg or um, a lion might yeah. well hallucinate <laughs> a Borg or a lion. Right. I do, most um, nights, actually. Yeah. Both of those um, things. But, uh, I mean, the the Doctor suddenly starting to talk about past companions and, and, and past enemies and stuff. Um, I mean, that's, that's fan pandering. Yeah. It doesn't add anything to the dramatic situation. It doesn't help you understand anything about the character. It certainly doesn't move the plot forward. Mm. Mm. Um, and, oh, my God, if there was a plot in the history of typing... Um, that needed something to move it forward a little. It's this thing. Mm-hmm. What about the um, like the proto Klingon costumes of the aliens? You know, the, I can't remember the, the, the race that they, but they've got the horns. 
I presume they're, they're, they're like the slug race, but but they didn't look like slugs to me. They look they really looked kind of Klingon-tastic, just with horns added. Yeah, um, I mean, once again, there's, there's individual bits of set design and costume design. Costume design. Have we mentioned the policeman's Baker foil bathrobe yet? No, we haven't. Go on, remind the listeners. Doc. There's a um, there's a space policeman mm. in it. Um, once again. He isn't a character. He doesn't do anything. Um, he faints. And then, for no good reason whatsoever, he dresses up in a Baker foil bathrobe. I can't explain why, but you starting at the description of that character by saying he isn't a character has really tickled me. What a slamming <laughs> indictment of that realisation. Good Lord. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know... We assume that the, <laughs> the, ty- the typist of the story didn't have a very good idea of how to create characters. Mm. Um, and, you know, we're assuming that the camera pointer um, didn't have a particularly good idea about um, <laughs> like how to draw anything out of their facial expressions <laughs> or their body language. How did, the, how did the recorder player do, in your mind, for the incidental music? Um, the, uh, the door-to-door Casio synthesizer salesman did sure. do a bad job. Okay, yeah, you're um, happy with that. I mean, it, it, uh, Malcolm, you've done better. Mm. Um, but um, if, as Mozart said, um, creativity and imagination are a capital sum reduced by expenditure, um, this was the correct place to uh, to conserve your resource. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Come on, Doc. Are we about done? Because I think if we say any, any more, we're just kind of being a, a bit cruel, really, and just and just kind of kicking kicking a man when he's down. To be fair, um, no, I mean there's there's no amount of abuse um, that is too outrageous for this. Um, it's watching this made me unhappier than I was before. Oh, it reduced the net. It, it reduced the net amount of happiness in my life. Oh God, I, I said the same thing at the end of, of last episode, didn't I? I? I seem to remember that I ended the episode by saying that I felt sad. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good Lord, I don't feel sad this time. It's your turn. It's your turn for the sadness. What a shame, isn't it? Good Lord, Doctor Who making people sad. We we don't want that, do we? It's it's one of those things. I didn't have this reaction. Well, the first time I had this reaction watching Doctor Who live on television was Time and the Rani. And I finished up watching it. Um, and I had the same reaction this time. And it's, what the hell are you doing with your life? Is yeah. this what you're into, really? Sure. Yeah. And, and the bad news um, is, Doc, you know, I think we've done, aren't we, really? Um, and the bad news is that, you know, the next story is Time of the Rani. Well... Here's the thing. I've had a long time. Um, I mentioned earlier on, I am as convinced as I can be that my opinions are my own and I form them by myself. Guard always against bigotry and prejudice, right? Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, be prepared to find a new way to look at something and find a new way to enjoy something. Sure. Um, there is a particular film, um, which I may end up talking about in the next podcast, Um which I disliked greatly when someone when, when I first saw it. Um, someone gave me the barest hint of how I could switch my perception just slightly, and I did a complete 180, in oh, my wow. opinion, of the film. That's a, well, that's um, a nice I've, teaser. That's a nice teaser. I've been, I've been working on 
I've revisited Ways of Seeing by John Berger, and I have been working on Ways of Seeing the Sylvester McCoy era. Mm. I know what I used to think of them. I don't need to watch them again to be reaffirmed of that. Mm -hmm. Um, What I need to do is battle with my own ego and battle with my own will and see if I can find another way of watching them and we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm I'm, going to try and do the same thing. I'm I'm going in kind of with a clean (coughs) mental slate if I can. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to put on time, time. Is, is it time of or time and the Rani? Time, time and the Rani, isn't it? Time and the it's Rani. Time and, it's time and your auntie. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm desperately going to try to, you know, kind of watch it from an unbiased perspective, but we shall see. That kind of brings us to a logical conclusion, I would say. Doc, do you agree? Yeah. Um, I mean, basically, twin dilemma, fuck you and double fuck you. Yeah, um, I, I, I understand the sentiment. It did not get to me in the same way as it got to you. Um, but 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 it, it, it's a bit of a turkey. There's no doubt about it. Um, so join us next time, guys. It is a bit of a turd. Yes, it's a massive turd. Oh yes, we, yes. We just have to agree to disagree, sir. I think. Uh, <laughs> join us next time, guys. I'm waiting for you to interrupt again, Doc. I could see you wanted to say something there. Oh, the only thing I was going to say was, um, as the um, as the horrible old woman in your favourite, the Talons of Wang Chiang says, yeah. um, upon discovering a dead body in the Thames. So you recall I said, it is a turd. And to paraphrase what she says, she says, it's a floater. <laughs> yes, I remember. I do remember that bit. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, here we go. Join us next time when we'll be discussing Sylvester McCoy's first story, Time and the Rani. Good luck, guys.